suggested that she moved to a milder climate. So her mother sent her to winter in Miami, which I wish I could do. Wintering in Miami sounds fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) It would be very nice. So she would go in winter in Miami with family friends. Um, Moving on to her teenage years. In 1942, Phoebe, who was Elizabeth's mom, received a letter from her father, Cleo, who they thought was dead, mind you, apologizing to the family and saying he started a new life in Vallejo, California. Again, another nice location. <laughs> Tell me that's not fucked up. <laughs> Dear God. <laughs> Um, December 1943, Elizabeth moved. Why does that go faster? Hey, welcome to the first episode of 10-0, where paranormal meets true crime. I am Maria. And I'm Caitlin. How are we feeling? Nervous. Nervous. <laughs> Why are you nervous? <laughs> this is our first episode. And we're diving right in with amazing true crime and paranormal stories. And it's it's a lot. It is, but it'll be fine. We'll be fine. So, I guess we'll start out with the true crime history. Okay. Okay. So, we're going back to 1948, May 14, 1948. In Blackburn, England, there was a three that was in the hospital with pneumonia. She was kidnapped from her hospital bed. Uh, she was discovered missing by nurses at 1.20 the next morning. After two hours of trying to find her, she was located and found dead. The medical examiner said that she had multiple skull fractures and had been raped. Um, they determined her cause of death was someone had swung her by her feet and cracked her skull against some kind of hard surface, and that's what killed her. Um, August 11 of 1948, Blackburn police caught her killer by the fingerprints and footprints that he left at the scene. And November 19, 1948, Peter Griffiths was executed for his crimes. So there's a little damper for your morning. (laughs) <laughs> do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? I'll go first. I knew you were going to make me go first. <laughs> Always. So, I'm going to make you guess what this is. I'm sure you already saw it. But I'm still going to make you guess. Oh. It was on the first season of American Horror Story. Black murder. Oh, look at you. So, I guess we'll start at the beginning. Best place to start. So Elizabeth Short was born on July 29th, 1924 in Boston, Massachusetts to Cleo and Phoebe Mae Short. She was the third of five daughters. In 1927, they moved to Medford, Massachusetts. This is where she would spend most of her childhood. In 1943, I'm sorry, 1930, her father, Cleo, his car was found on the Charleston Bridge was believed that he committed suicide by jumping into the Charles River. Elizabeth was not a very um, healthy child by any means. She had lung surgery at 15 due to a severe case of asthma and chronic bronchitis. The doctor actually went to Vallejo with her father. She got a job at Base Exchange at Camp Cook. And 1943, she moved to Santa Barbara and was arrested in September for underage drinking. This would actually help in identifying who she was later. Um, juvenile authorities in California sent her back to Massachusetts to move with her mother. So, you know, she'd stay out of shenanigans, which obviously didn't work, but she moved back to Florida. Uh, that is where she met Major Michael. I'm sorry, I can't talk anymore. Matthew Michael Gordon Jr., who was a decorated Air Force officer. That's a mouthful. Right? That's too much alliteration for me. <laughs> Major Matthew Michael Gordon. <laughs> Tell me that's not a- So, 
he proposed via a letter after he was injured in a plane crash in India, and she accepted his proposal. However, not to put more of a damper on things, um, he died August 10, 1945, in a second plane crash. So death kind of follows her, I guess. I'd say so. Uh, July 1946, she relocated to Los Angeles to visit Lieutenant Joseph Fickling. Fickling. I can't say that word. Fickling. <laughs> say that ten times fast, I dare you. Nope, I'm good. <laughs> she met him in Florida, and they relocated to Los Angeles around the same time. So she went to go visit him. Um, January 9th, 1947 was the last day that she was seen alive. Uh, she returned home after a trip with Robert Manley, who was a 25-year-old married salesman that she was dating at the time. He dropped her off at the Biltmore Hotel. Um, during the investigation, Manley said that Short was supposed to be meeting with her sister, which we don't know if happened or not. Uh, the last place that she was seen alive was the Crown Grill Cocktail Lounge, which was, I think, was two blocks from the Biltmore Hotel, if I remember correctly. So her body was discovered January 15th, 1947. It was found by Betty Bursinger and her three-year-old daughter in Lemert Park section of L.A. on South Norton Avenue between Coliseum Street and 39th Street at 10 a.m., Bersinger actually thought that her body was a mannequin because of how it was positioned. So as far as her injuries, I made a list because that's how I am. Um, she had ligature marks on her ankles, wrists, and neck. She had a Glasgow smile, which extended up three inches on either side of her face. Her body was cut in half via, <laughs> I don't know why I <laughs> do this. <laughs> It was cut in half via hemicorporectomy. Hemicorporectomy. This is when the lower half is removed by transecting the spine between the L2 and L3 vertebrae. There was also little bruising with this, suggesting that it was performed after her death. Um, they couldn't tell if she was raped or not, but there were there was dilation, so they think that she was raped. Um, she had cuts on her thighs and breasts, and one of her breasts was removed. The lower half was positioned a foot away from her top half, and her intestines were tucked underneath her butt, and she had a laceration from her belly to her suprapubic region that was four and a quarter inches in length. That sounds cool. You know, when I was in New Orleans, <laughs> we went to the museum. Museum of Death. And they had exhibits from all different serial killers and stuff. And they had um, like lapel pins that you could buy. So I bought the Black Dahlia pin because this is my favorite case ever. And I just bought it not seeing it. <laughs> this is the most graphic pin set I've ever seen in my entire life. It is her body in two different pieces. It's two separate pins that has all of her injuries on it. Oh. Like it is very anatomically correct and it's kind of scary. I want to... You're gonna have to bring it back. <laughs> <laughs> I want to put it on my backpack. Um, but it's very graphic. <laughs> I, I want to see it. <laughs> I'll post it on the Instagram when I do the, <laughs> the episode post. It's incredibly graphic. Like it's really cool. It sounds really cool. Like I, I, but I'm intrigued now. I have to see it. If if I put it on my backpack and my niece sees it, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there is that. <clears throat> Definitely not something that I would be able to have around my kids. <laughs> so, um, as far as identification, she was ID'd from her fingerprints from her 1943 arrest. This is where shit gets even more fucked up. So reporters from the LA Examiner contacted Short's mom, Phoebe, saying that she had won a beauty contest to get personal information about Elizabeth from Phoebe. And after getting info, they told Phoebe that Elizabeth had been murdered. They offered to pay for travel for her to come to LA to help with the investigation, 
which was also a lie, tried to keep her away from PD so that she couldn't help with the investigation. So as far as the investigation part goes, in January 21st, 1947, there was a man claiming to be Short's killer that called James Richardson, who was the editor of the Examiner, congratulating him on the coverage of the case so far. He stated he planned on turning himself in after there was more police pursuit and trying to find him. He also told Richardson to expect souvenirs of Short in the mail. (laughs) So there's that. Uh, January 24th, 1947, there was a post worker that found a manila envelope addressed to the LA Examiner and that contained a cut and pasted letter saying, quote, here is Dahlia's belongings letter to follow. Like how a ransom note would be like cut from letters from a newspaper. It had her birth certificate in it, um, random business cards, random names written on paper and Mark Hansen's address book. So when when Elizabeth first moved to um, L.A., she was staying with Mark Hansen, and he was immediately named a suspect. He was a nightclub owner and a theater owner, and she had stayed with him and rejected several of his advances on her. So, you know, automatically a suspect. Um, That package had been cleaned with gasoline. There were partial prints discovered on it, but they weren't able to get a match. Well, no, because gasoline. (laughs) So LAPD interviewed over 150 men as far as suspects, and Robert Manley, who was the one that she went on the trip with, was a main suspect but cleared after many, many polygraphs that he was forced to take. Um, I don't even trust polygraphs. Polygraphs are stupid. No. There's so many ways that you can fool those. Exactly. Because all you have to do is change the way that your heart rate is. So you can get anxious, you can get nervous, and it can throw the entire thing off. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) So as far as how many investigators were on the case, there were a hundred, I quit, I'm done talking. (laughs) 750 investigators were on this case. Holy shit. 400 from LAPD and 250 from the California State Police. So, I don't even think we have that many in Indiana. I mean, you would think so. The county I used to work at had a shit ton. Not to pinpoint our location or anything. Right. You know. Yeah. So, for theories, since it is an unsolved case, um, a lot of people think it was related to the Cleveland Torso murders, which occurred between 1934 and 1938. Um, the suspect for those murders was Jack Wilson. There was a, te- a detective from Cleveland, um, Detective St. John, almost arrested Wilson, but he died in a fire before he could get his hands on him. Ouch. Yeah, I'm good. Hard pass. Um, February 10th, 1947 was Jean French murder in LA and on her stomach written in lipstick was fuck you BD. Okay. It's not suspicious or anything. No, not at all. <laughs> um, Steve Hodel and William Rasmus are crime authors link the Black Dahlia murder with the 1946 murder of a six-year-old named Suzanne Degnan in Chicago. This is weird for me. So Short's body was found on Norton Street, which was three blocks west of Degnan Street in LA. Oh. That's some cryptic shit. Yeah? Or one hell of a coincidence. I don't believe in coincidence anymore. Same. Um, Similarities in the handwriting on a ransom note as far as um, Suzanne's murder in Chicago. William Hirons uh, served life in prison for Degnan's murder, and they were never able to connect anything else. That's all I got for the dog, yeah. So, for our paranormal side, 
I was going to kind of make a guess a little bit, but for the sake of advertising and boosting our Instagram page, I decided to kind of fill her in on what I was doing. Um, so today I'm going to be talking about a place that's very close to where my family lived when I was younger. Um, growing up in Gary, Indiana wasn't easy. <laughs> we lived on Ohio Street in East Glen Park, which is now a known area for gangs. Um, this house, the Demon House, yes, was only seven or eight blocks from where we lived. Um, we couldn't get to it from where we lived unless we got on Route 6 because it was blocked off in like its own little subdivision. Um, normally, I wouldn't have chose a story this big for our first episode. However, it's been something that I've been obsessed about since I was 11 years old. I'm a 90s kid. This came out in the news in 2011, 2012. Um, so first, what I'm going to do is walk through the events that can easily be found by like a Google search. And then we'll get into the investigation after the property was purchased by someone famous. So let's get into it. In November of 2011, the Amons family moved into the residence. And within days, black flies had swarmed the front porch down onto the street. <clears throat> so they had thought that they had killed all the flies, but they just kept coming back and multiplying. Um, the family consisted of Latoya Amons, her mother, and three children. Um, the grandmother began hearing footsteps in the home, as well as doors creaking when no one was around. She even claimed that she had felt like she was being choked. Um, and even went as far to say she had seen a full-bodied apparition. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't stay in that house. Absolutely. During a sleepover with friends, Amon's 12-year-old daughter was reportedly levitated above the bed what? in front of her friends, which prayed for her until she was returned to her original position. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would have packed up and moved. They are a lot stronger than me. <laughs> the two younger boys that were in the home had each had disturbing things happen to them while they were living in the home, including fits of rage, growling, talking into demonic voices, um, even having their eyes rolling back in their heads at the time. Right. And, and that's what makes me really nervous and happy that they're no longer in the home because anytime something happens to children my stomach just sinks and it worries me because I am a mom um and I I know what it's like to have that uneasy feeling okay so fast forward to 2012 the family had reached out to their doctor explaining the things that have been happening in the home and upon visiting the children of the residents he concluded that their behavior was delusional he wasn't listening thought that they were faking it. The children were later taken to the hospital after a member of his staff contacted the hospital explaining what was going on. Um, the hospital staff and a DCS agent witnessed the youngest son walking backwards up a wall. I'm sorry. Um, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we'll they get, didn't believe them. Right. We'll get more into that in a little bit. Um, but even DCS had stated that they believed it was an act, even after multiple publications from various news agencies at the time um, that were covering it, and an eyewitness account of what had happened. Um, the family, fearing the worst, hired a priest to perform an exorcism. Which in Indiana is a really big deal. We don't see that very often, and very little is it publicized. <clears throat> right. Um, upon inter an interview with the family, 
the priest had concluded that they were in fact being tormented by demons. The priest ended up performing multiple I can't talk exorcisms, (laughs) including one on Latoya Ammons herself. However, I didn't believe them when the kid was walking backwards up a damn wall. Nope. And the priest, I believe, if I recall, it was the priest, um, hospital staff, and the DCS worker that all witnessed it. Um, Right. But the exorcism was enough for the family to move into a home 150 miles away in Indianapolis. I did not attempt to contact the family as respect as to respect their privacy, um, and do know do not know if they still reside in Indianapolis at this time. Um, this is mainly going to be going off of what we can gather solely online. I'm not in the business of contacting people who have since moved on or have in any way not wanted to be associated with it anymore. So now we're going to get into the investigation. In 2014, the property was sold sight unseen to none other than Zach Bagans of Ghost Adventures. (laughs) He purchased the home for $35,000 and decided to find out the truth about the paranormal occurrences that plagued this family in the home. In 2018, he released a documentary of his experiences called The Demon House. Um, Zach and the Ghost Adventures crew, part of them, some of them decided that they weren't going to. Um, They began filming only three days after the home was purchased. Upon walking into the home for the very first time, He received a text from a psychic medium that was also a friend with a warning. The text portrayed a 12-foot-tall demon guardian-type figure with the hooves and head of a goat with its horns facing backwards. Backwards? Backwards. So instead of them being, like, spiraled forward, like how they grow back and then forward, they grew up and twisted backwards. Um... If you want to see images of that, you can watch the documentary. I rewatched it for like the fourth time because I'm obsessed um, the other night. <laughs> but, <laughs> right. Like, I have chills talking about it. <laughs> um, Zach did track down the Ammons family who declined speaking with him about the home. However, the children's uncle, Kevin, did talk to Zach and was not allowed back in the residence afterward. The family feared that something dark had transferred to him and did not want him in their home anymore. I I don't blame him either. Um, While speaking with Kevin, he recalled multiple instances of the children attacking one another, speaking in tongues, and growling out of nowhere. Shortly after, Zach had made contact with Father Machineau, which is the priest that the family hired. He recalled every event that has been talked about thus far, um, including the DCS worker and the hospital staff witnessing the boy crawl up the wall. Um, The priest later recalls being on a bike ride during his investigation and his experiences with the family. Um, he like was on a bike ride by yeah, himself. He was on a bike ride by himself, okay. and he can see everyone just kind of staring at him funny. Like, why is a priest out on a bike? But it was a normal thing. He wasn't. He wasn't sure why they were just kind of staring at him like blank face. Um, until he fell off of his bike as if he was shoved, and he has no recollection of him falling. But. He does remember getting up and back on his bike. And he remembers feeling like if this demon that is in this house is that strong to be able to manipulate him outside of the home, then something's definitely wrong. Yeah. But we're we're going to revisit him in a little bit. Captain Charles Austin of the Gary Police Department met with Zach and stated that they were dispatched to the location 
in 2012 due to the children in the home not showing up for school. They explored the home. Kind of it was all 10 for. Everything was good. Everything was kosher. <laughs> well, I mean, other people have different ways of saying everything's okay. Um, they explored the home, including the basement, just to make sure everything was cool. And he mentioned feeling uneasy and ill in the basement. Never go to the basement. Um, just don't go in the basement. So he noticed when he was getting ready to go back up the stairs into the main level floor of the house that underneath the basement stairs was dirt. It was a fully concreted basement. Underneath the stairs was dirt. Okay. What drew his eye was a aluminum foil pan like you would cook like on the grill with or take to a cookout. Like when I made that cake in the last one. Yes. With a candle in it that had been lit and was burning at some time before this. Um, so multiple calls for that address poured into Lake County um, after that, which ended up leading officers to dig beneath the stairs where they found a fingernail, women's underwear, two children's socks, a red tin, and some other objects that weren't disclosed. Um, they had dug four feet into that dirt. So there's no telling how deep that really went, if it went all the way past the foundation or anything like that, or who put them there. So, so squirrel. Not to pinpoint where we are, where we used to work or anything. Right. But it's no secret. I used to work for Lake County. Okay, there it is. But I remember when this came out and I started working there, I remember the address and I tried to look it up. Unless they blocked, like the police department blocked us from seeing those reports, there's no reports on file. Right. Which is which is weird. But I mean it's completely entirely possible that they just is. blocked it from everybody because you know everybody's nosy like me and dispatchers right. are nosy nosy by nature. But here we are. So there was nothing that we could see. Like I think you could see the truancy one where the kids didn't go to school. I think that was it. And like prior to that, you could see calls at that address. Before they lived there, you could see calls prior to that and calls after, like after they moved and after Zach purchased it. But that in between time, there was nothing. Like not a single thing. I mean, it could also be another form of demonic manipulation too. Um, However, this came directly from Captain Charles Austin. Right. So I don't see any means or reason to discredit what he says. Right. I'm not trying to discredit him. Right, right. I'm I'm not saying you are. No. I completely understand what you're trying to say. I feel like they probably just blocked it. Probably, because everything that happened in this house is very, very traumatic. Right. So I can I can see them blocking it just so someone else doesn't you know end up with PTSD or something of the like from going through and researching everything. Right. Um, Perfect. Shiny. <laughs> what what kills me is the fact that they found a fingernail and it was like a fake nail. Oh, like a fake fingernail. Yes, it was like a fake fingernail, but it still had remnants of someone's Ooh. fingernail underneath yeah. it. So I don't know if maybe it was like the daughter digging and she had fake nails on and one broke off or if it was maybe some type of object to use to curse that family or that house. Anything with a fingernail not attached to a body. No. (laughs) And the fact that it was women's underwear and two children's socks. Like, that kind of makes me think that it was something targeting them. You know what I mean? Because there's two young boys in the house. 
obviously two older women and a 12 year old girl that could possibly, you know, have had pink fingernails at some point. Um, <sighs> While DCS and police were at the residence with the priest present, they found an odd phenomenon occurring in the middle bedroom on the first floor. The blinds began to drip oil. And I'm not talking like from the top of the blinds that could have been, you know, residual from like staining whatever trim they had or anything like that. I'm talking like from the middle of the blinds down. Like, when you say oil, like, like it was an like oily, oil, it was like an oily substance. The DCS worker actually touched the blinds and felt pain. Resi- like residual pain in her hand um, after she had left the house and been away from the family and away from the home. Months later, they reported that she had suffered a broken hand. Um, I'm not sure. I don't know if they actually said that. <laughs> um, broken ribs during a jet ski accident. Um and other issues that could be residual from her dealing with this case. Um, And and we'll see more instances like that as I go through this. Um, So they sealed that room with a Q-tip in the door to make sure that no one goes in there because the Q-tip's gonna drop. They left it for 40 minutes. After 40 minutes, the priest had walked out of the home at some point. However, he paused before even leaving the porch, stating the oil's back before they found that it was. Um, they opened the door after, and when they first initially went in there, they wiped down the blinds to attempt to rule out any type of contamination. That was my next So like holy oil or anything like that. Right. Um, they wiped down the blinds. And after the priest said that, they went back in to check and there was oil dripping from the same spot. And I, and when I say dripping, I mean dripping. So Zach also had the home inspected for any type of like outside interference. So like black mold, asbestos, anything that can be lived with in certain quantities that can potentially mess with your brain chemistry and make you hallucinate or have like that euphoric state of mind or even hysteria. Um, The home inspector stated that he did find black mold. There was issues with the furnace emitting carbon monoxide and there was a exhaust hose or something to the water heater that could have added to it as well. So Carbon monoxide, black mold, or asbestos in large quantities has been proven to cause a state of mental euphoria or hysteria or even hallucinations. And the home inspector, after he was done, a couple months later was diagnosed with cancer after being in the home. So there's another residual issue. Um... We later find out in the documentary that Captain Charles Austin had an episode outside of a diner where he fell and was unconscious for about a minute. His feet slid on ice as if he was pushed and he stated that his feet lifted about two to three feet off the ground and he landed flat on his back and his skull was bleeding. It was just another instance of what happens to people residually after they leave this house. Um, During filming on location, a lady named Mika, who used to live in the home before all of this happened, um, stopped outside the residence with her three children. Um, She spoke about living in the home and remembering friends that had heard footsteps 
she did give permission for her and her three children to explore the home, including going to the basement, which would be Mika's first time ever in the basement. If I'm not mistaken, I have a quote. She stated, I had dreams in the house where someone I knew would die soon. Then my brother, who used to live in the basement, was shot and killed. One would listen to me, and then it happened. That's why I don't go in the basement. Yeah. I wouldn't either. I, there's a theme with a lot of demon cases and a lot of possession cases that the energy feeds off of the energy in the basement. Exactly. <laughs> so she allowed her children into the house. Um, they went into the basement and her oldest daughter was beginning to act strangely, like disassociating. And when they went back upstairs, she asked, is the demon still in this house or like, has it moved on? And then she disassociates immediately. How old was she? Do you know? Um, I believe she was 13 at the time. Um, I think she was 13 or 14, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but not like super young. No, she she was a teenager. She was the oldest. Um, at one point, like Mika stated she had never been in the basement, stated why, and then her daughter just acts indifferent, disassociates, um, while she was leaving the house, um, in the documentary, you see Mika standing by the front door and clear as day. You hear Run LaToya captured on one of their actual audio cameras, not, you know, an EVP device of any kind on one of the actual filming cameras. And I just got chills talking about it. I That's going to be a no for me. So fast forward a little bit. And Erica barely remembered anything. Um, being in the house, but Erica was the DCS lady, right? No, Erica is Mika's daughter. Oh, okay. Um, shortly after they left, surveillance cameras in the house caught Zach trying to attack Jay, which is one of the cameramen like yelling at him, shoving him, telling him to leave. And then Mika calls back on February 20th saying that her daughter had attempted suicide two days after visiting the house. And as soon as Zach got that phone call and told the crew, one of his crew members quit immediately. Yeah. Um, Erica didn't remember anything being in the house. Like she remembers visiting the house, but she doesn't remember anything that occurred inside the house. And then she also didn't remember anything with her trying to attempt suicide. She didn't remember fighting with her mom. So the priest, Father Maginot, decided to file for permission to do racism on Erica mm -hmm. in which when he does it halfway through she slumps over and disassociates doesn't remember anything for the exorcism or anything like that and Father Machino states that he thinks that at that point the demon had left her body yeah um it later comes to light that five people had died in the house, inside the house. Um, while walking 
a doctor through the house. He was a doctor of like paranormal stuff. I can't remember what all he does. Um, like parapsychology and he has like all of these devices that measure like geometric stuff. So while they're down in the basement, he starts feeling dizzy and feeling ill and uneasy. And he goes upstairs, goes into the back bedroom next to the bathroom And when he does, Adam, another cameraman, follows him and captures this black anomaly that just seems to appear off the wall. And it's in frame for seven, seven frames out of, out of a certain amount. Um, Because, you know, my mind is failing me right now. Um, So it's not like a shadow. It was completely analyzed. It's not a shadow. And the doctor walks back out and puts his hand on the wall to the back in the exact spot the anomaly was. After that, Adam begins acting strangely. He goes and he kind of like stares at his hands like he's confused. And then he turns around and disappears. No one sees him walk off. He wandered down to the basement and he was found later laying in the middle of the back bedroom in the basement. In the same room of Nico's brother who was shot. I don't think, I I don't remember if he was shot in the home. I don't think he was. Um, So after that, go to the hotel, and Adam is just still acting estranged. Um, he's shouting for Zach in the hallway, taunting whatever it was that had followed him to the hotel. He claimed that it was touching his hands, and when someone walked towards him, I think it was Billy or Jay, They walked towards him and he was freezing. Like everything around him was cold. As if something was there attached to him. Um, Zach asked what he saw in the elevator because he was taunting whatever it was in the elevator. And he looked at Zach and boldface said, I think you know exactly what I saw then went to describe the same figure that Zach was warned about upon entering the house in detail. And not only was Zach warned about it entering the home, he also had a dream, which led to him buying the house. Adam talks about, you know, what he's seen. It was then that that Zach disclosed he never mentioned the text message or the dream or the figure to any member of the crew. Oh. For him to look at Zach Boldface and be like, I think you know what I saw. Yeah. I, that's a no for me. Like, I can't do it. <laughs> I don't want um, backwards horn. Yeah. No. So mm-hmm. the doctor that explored the house with all of his little devices and all of that ended up staying at the same hotel um a couple of floors away from them and he had fallen out of bed well he had fallen ill at some point he had blood coming out of both of his ears and later it was found that he had multiple organs fail at the same time um, his liver, his kidneys, his pancreas, like, yeah. And he even says that it's strange that multiple things are happening in succession with being in that house. He's explored other paranormal investigations. Um, he's been on a few with Ghost Adventures. I just can't remember his name to save my life. Um, but he 
discloses that it's funny almost that all of this is happening to people that have been involved with this house. Can he pinpoint that it's the demon doing it? No. Does he think that it's somehow related? Yes. Um, so Zach decides to board up all of the windows and outside accesses to the home. He actually calls Captain Charles Austin to have him seal the front door with plywood and lock him inside. Uh, locked him and locked Zach inside? Yes. Zach was locked inside by him for a full night in the home. <laughs> I mean, I've seen them do lockdowns where, you know, they're locked inside buildings and locked inside stuff like that. Okay. But they're never but alone. They're never alone and it's not this extreme. The, no. So captured on film that night were disembodied voices, disembodied growling. And shortly after the growling, Zach drops the camera on the bed next to him and tells whatever it is to go away. You see the camera go out of focus and then see a tall black mask walk in front of it. After that, he goes into the kitchen, um, I guess to confront the damn thing because it's Zach. And he feels like extreme pain behind his eyes. Zach was later diagnosed with diplopia and now has to wear prism glasses because of the permanent damage. So basically it made him like go cross-eyed and now he has to wear a certain type of glasses to correct his vision for the rest of his life. Um, Yeah, but at the same time, it's, it's one of those things that you have to question. Is it the demon? Is it the house? What is causing all of these things to go wrong in people's lives that are in conjuncture with this house? He later had the home demolished. I can't say if it wasn't the next day. I would have demolished it the next day. I would have bought it and then immediately demolished it, considering what happened. But before he left the house, he took away souvenirs. It's no secret that he owns his museum of haunted things. I want to go so bad. But he took away the table and the crosses that were in the basement. And if you watch the documentary, you'll see this. I kind of left that part out. Um, Because I'm not going to give you a detailed description of every little thing that happens. Um, I want you guys to take interest in it like I did and research it yourself if you want to. Um, But he took away the table and the crosses that were in the basement the stairs to the basement and dirt from under the stairs. However, they are not in his museum. I don't think they ever will be. Um, They are stored in a storage. Honestly, if I were him, and I was taking away souvenirs, it'd be to remember everything that happened. But at the same time, (laughs) right. (laughs) But at the same time, you have to think, how much are you willing to sacrifice of yourself and your your mental state having those items anywhere near you at this point? Um, Eventually, he's going to die, and that shit's going to end up on storage floors. Dear God. And somebody's going to find this dirt. (laughs) I've got a jar of dirt. Somebody's going to find this jar of dirt. Stairs from this fucking demon house. It's not a drawer. It's a five-gallon fucking bucket. Oh, fuck. That's just dumb on his part. But somebody's gonna find this damn bucket. Like, somebody's gonna find this table. Somebody's gonna find these. Did he take all of the stairs or just like a piece of a stair? I think he took the entire bottom part of the stairs. Like, 
So like the bottom half of the stairs yes. or like so like stair? the the stairs go down and then there's a landing and right. then they go down again. Okay. So I think you took the bottom portion from the landing down. So somebody's gonna go to storage wars. <laughs> <laughs> they're gonna get this. They're gonna get this storage locker. They're gonna find a five gallon bucket full of dirt from a stairs. demon house that's gonna have a fucking fingernail in it. Which, first off, is not okay with me. Secondly, they're going to find the stairs. Where do these stairs come from? Oh, you know, just a fucking demon house. <laughs> I'm sorry. Squirrel, shiny things. Continue. So that concludes my thoughts on the demon house. Oh, damn it. Honestly... I I gotta give props to the family because I would not have been able to stay there. Like I I hear a bump and I know nobody's home. I'm freaking the hell out. Especially if I can't see my animals. Because my basement is creepy as fuck. Um but so far so good. I haven't witnessed anything. Um, in my home so thank god for that and as always I do not claim any negative energy <laughs> <laughs> from talking about this case I feel or... like that needs to be at the end of every episode I claim no negative energy from these stories <laughs> right? especially some of them that can get dark like this I know I've got a couple good ones that I'm going to research over yes. the next couple days yeah. But that concludes our first episode. Hope you enjoy it. Also, I'm going to say it again for the millionth time already, even though it's our first episode. If you have any listener stories that you want us to do, because we're going to do a listener story episode at least once a month once we start getting stories, or if you have case suggestions, make sure you email it to us. Um, Oh, if you do do a listener story, make sure you put listener story in the subject so I can sort through everything in our email. Um, I'll make our email in the show notes so you can send those in. And also follow us on Instagram. Yes, we do have an Instagram. It is 10 spelled out underscore zero spelled out underscore podcast. Um, If you want to message us on there with a story, that's fine. Or a suggestion for a case, that's fine. Um, We just want to hear from you guys, see if you have anything good for us. Absolutely. Stay safe and don't become the next 10 0.